chapter 6. That's on page 533 in that blue Bible in the chair in front of you. If you don't have a Bible at home, I really encourage you to take that one. Uh, bring it home um, and with the only stipulation that you actually read it. That's the only thing I want from you. Start with the Gospel of John. So that's Acts 6, and we'll be in verses 8 to 15. As we see more of this man named Stephen, who is described as a man of full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. We were introduced to him last week. Stephen is the first Christian martyr. And over these next little couple of chapters, we'll be introduced more and more to him and who he is and uh, probably does one of the best sermons ever uh, in the next chapter. But for clarification, a martyr is a person who is killed because of their religious or other beliefs. There are many stories of Christian martyrs throughout history. There's even a book written in the 1500s called Fox's Book of Martyrs that describes those things that happen mainly in England and Scotland. Yes, England and Scotland. Before someone comes along and says, this doesn't happen in the Western world although it was in the 1500s. There are modern examples as well, but as you read them, have you ever wondered how they could go through that? How could they go through this? How could they die for something that they just simply said or simply believed? Because all they have to do is recant. That's it. They just have to say, yeah, you know, uh, I was kind of wrong on that point. Uh, you know, you're right. I get it. And the torture would have stopped. But there are many examples of men and women who did not recant. Or how about this? You're talking to someone and they start asking questions about your faith and you know you're not the quickest person on your feet. You can't think that fast. Maybe you're maybe a little shy and you're having this conversation. So you're not really the type of person that can rely upon your giftings to get through this discussion. Then all of a sudden, there's a flood of emotions and confidence that come upon you with the right words, and you begin to talk to this person about Jesus Christ, who was born of the Virgin Mary, and who grew up, who died on the cross for our sin, and that we are sinful. We're all sinful because we've all sinned against God. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And you kind of think back to that time when you're talking with that individual and go, where did that come from? Or maybe you're the person watching as your quiet, timid friend all of a sudden has this same questions from another individual. They're the one that you always have to push to get out there. And suddenly it's like beast mode gets put on. How could they stay faithful as they face trials and sharing their faith? How? See, over the next couple of chapters, we are further introduced to this man named Stephen, one of the people who we saw back a few verses before, who were set apart by the church to relieve the apostles so that the apostles could dedicate their time to the preaching and the teaching and to prayer. And that's what God uses to increase his church and the disciples continue to grow and that God's church continues to grow as these people continue to faithfully preach and to teach and to pray. We saw in verse 5, Stephen was a man full of faith, coming with empty hands, reaching out to take hold of the Savior who was given to us in our sorry situation and misery. Stephen was a man who was full of that certain faith 
and was ready to head straight on to whatever may come his way, knowing that God was in complete control. So Acts chapter 6, starting in verse 8, going to verse 15, says this. The word of the Lord says this. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of the Cilias and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceased to speak words against this holy place in the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the chance we have to continue to worship you, to open your word together, to make much of you. Lord, we have worshiped you in our music, in our singing, in the reading of your word, through our giving, and now we continue to worship you through the preaching of your word. So Lord, I want to preach so that you are glorified, and I want to speak of you and praise your name. Lord, I can't do this on my own, so by your spirit will you help me to preach this sermon with what is needed. And use this sermon, Lord, to bring glory to your name, joy to your people, and salvation to the lost. And amen. In verses 8 to 10, we see how the Holy Spirit empowers. Stephen, a man, we see in verse 8, that had, a clear, had clear evidence of a spirit-filled faith. And this faith is what we see here in verse 8. And it, and it is what will guide what he does and says in the following couple of chapters. This is the faith coming with those empty hands, reaching out to take hold of the Savior who has given to, who was given to him in his sorry state and situation. As verse 8 says, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and, and signs among the people. See, Stephen wasn't just gifted with organization with the distribution of all that was needed to help those people in need, but he's also gifted with speaking. He was full of power, grace and power, showing the Holy Spirit was present and working through Stephen, and he was doing great wonders and signs, and we don't know the extent of these spiritual gifts and who they were necessarily given to outside of the apostles, but we do know one thing is that these signs and wonders were used by God to further the gospel. I think sometimes we can get stuck on, ooh, what type of signs and wonders they are, and completely ignore the rest of the passage. That God used these to proclaim the gospel, the word of God, to preach the word. And what characterizes Stephen is what we see 
here is, what was, sorry, what was promised to the disciples back in Acts 1 verse 8. Remember this, when Jesus comes and he's sending his disciples out, he says this in Acts 1 8, but you will receive power with the Holy Spirit who has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And gifted, they were gifted to bring the message about Jesus to the world. There's a continuation from what Jesus told the apostles, those 12 apostles, and what the disciples, those who are Christ learners, will continue to do as well. This wasn't a power that was a physical. It's not like Stephen suddenly became like the Hulk or something. It wasn't a worldly knowledge or an influence. This was the power of the Holy Spirit. And all that is to happen is only by the power of God in Stephen's life. You notice uh, sometimes we make this mistake in Sunday school is that when we're teaching our children about Sunday school, we always talk about the heroes of the Bible. But the Bible only has one hero, and it's God. And here's another example of that. As notice, uh, you notice that Stephen wasn't just involved in the serving of the church, but also active outside the church in the proclamation of God's message. His gifting wasn't just about Sunday morning, but God's people gather to scatter. Stephen's gifting wasn't just used to build up the church, but to bring the hope of the nations and empower him to proclaim this message about who Jesus is and what he has done. Stephen didn't say to himself, all right, I came to church on Sunday, I'm good to go. He came to church on Sunday, and then he went out proclaiming what he heard and was reminded of on that day, of who Jesus was. What Jesus had done for him affected the other six days of his week. In verse 9, we see the people begin to get a little upset with what's happening, we see people who belonged to the synagogue of freedmen. They were Jewish people who were at one point slaves in other parts of the Roman Empire who had all come back to Jerusalem. So they set up a synagogue, a place of worship, kind of like a church, to gather and worship together. And they were not happy about what is happening. It was these men who heard what Stephen was saying and they didn't like it. And I think it's a reminder that our response to God's word shows our true state of our hearts. That's all Stephen was doing, was proclaiming what Jesus had already said. And they didn't like it. How we respond to God's word is a clear sign of the state of our hearts. And Stephen proclaiming the message about Jesus, that he is the Christ, the long-awaited Messiah, that he died for his people's sins, and that he rose again, was not being received very well. It's a reminder for us that as we go out to speak the message about Jesus, that it's not always received the way that we would like. It's not like everyone comes and likes, yeah, praise God, thanks for telling me that. In fact, often it's not. And then sometimes it's even hostile, like we see with Stephen. Because these people in the synagogue of free men, they rose up and disputed with Stephen. Rose up meaning that they were probably sitting there watching and listening to Stephen doing all these cool things, all these signs and the wonders, and then suddenly they actually start listening to what Stephen has to say. And you get these pictures of just starting, they just start shaking their heads back and forth. 
And eventually, they couldn't take it anymore. I'm reminded once a friend of mine, a close friend of mine, he was getting married, and uh, you know it's going to be a long ceremony when the bride and the groom sit down, okay? Uh, so they sit down, and the pastor preaches his, his sermon, which was a great sermon. It was on Ephesians 5. I still remember it. But I also remember an individual, a couple of pews in front of me, just shaking their head with disdain as God's word was being read. And this is what I picture of when I hear this, as they rose up. So they disputed, meaning that they were being very forceful with their difference of opinion, but weren't necessarily seeking to have a solution. You ever meet those people? They just don't like you? This wasn't a conversation, but a yelling at Stephen. They were mad. How dare you say what you say? You're wrong. That's not right. Ever had people like that? You present God's word to them, and the response is just anger or frustration. We've all had those examples. If you've ever opened God's word with someone, especially if they're in sin, it's a reminder through that, though that, they're, they're ang- they're, that these individuals weren't angry necessarily at Stephen, but on the words that he was saying, which were God's words, not his. So in verse 10, we see another great reminder for us. It's not about getting a certain level of knowledge, but knowing the gospel. Do you need to know all the answers? No. Will you mess up? 100%. But will God use your faithful witness? Absolutely. I personally hang on to the promises of Isaiah 55, verse 11. So shall my words be that go out of my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, God says, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the things for which I sent it. And it could be a hardening and it could be a softening. Another reason why we need to be people of God's word and use God's word in our evangelism and our discipleship. But does this mean that we should ever stop being Christ learners? No, we continue to grow Christ so that we can be greater effective witnesses and faithful witnesses for God. Some of the most effective witnesses, witnesses I've ever met are actually people who God saved later in life. Not like me who grew up in the church and God saved me in this. For some reason, I have this like, I don't know, I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. But here Stephen is standing up, and the people are rising up, yelling facts at him, but they couldn't argue against him. Why? God's word says they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirits. Remember, he was a man full of the spirits. I love how the NIV actually translates this passage. But they could not stand against wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. They couldn't withstand him. These people were no match for Stephen. Why were they no match for Stephen? Because it wasn't Stephen. It was God speaking through him. They tried to fight Stephen, but found that they were fighting with God. The character of wisdom that Stephen had was showing showing in the way he spoke, not just in his management skills. So how can we explain Stephen's ability? We look to Luke chapter 21, verse 15, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict, Jesus says to his disciples. 
Stephen didn't have theological training. He didn't go to Bible college or seminary. He didn't attend an evangelism class, but he was a person of the word and prayer. And how do I know that? Acts chapter 4. When the, at, when the apostles were brought before the council the first time, they went to their friends, and what did the church do? They prayed. They prayed, and they reminded each other of God's word. Why do the nations rage, they say? He was a person of the word, and a person of prayer. And the way that we know the mind and help of the spirits is to know the word of God that is inspired by the spirit. This week, I got a text message from one of our young adults. And before someone says to me, oh, you're not supposed to share these things, I asked, okay? (laughs) It's not like my children. I don't ask permission from them. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) This is the exact text I got. I have one other prayer request. I'm in a city for the week. I'm staying with the family I used to live with before, and they aren't believers. Pray, please pray for the Holy Spirit that he would give me the right words at the right moments and for their souls. It's hard for me to talk about eternal condemnation when sharing the gospel. Yeah, I'll pray for you. Yes, I will pray for you. And this young adult who understands a few things, a few fundamental things come through in this text message. There is eternal condemnation for those who reject the gospel, who reject Jesus as Lord and Savior. She understands that, and that's why she's asking for prayer. These people are people that she loves and who are without Jesus and don't face a throne of grace but a throne of judgment with no mediator, no advocate. And you telling the people you love how to avoid hell is a good thing. She understands that there is hope for the lost, the broken, the sinner through Jesus Christ. She knows that even though these loved ones are facing condemnation, that there is hope in the gospel because Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose again. She understands it's hard for her to talk about these truths. So with the tensions of knowing the gospel in her own life and a very real fear, she prays and asks for prayer. Why? Because she knows she can't do it on her own. More than that, it's not even her words that will convince or convict. It's the Holy Spirit working through her, telling the message of Jesus that will bring conviction. So I pray for her and for me and for you. Lord, give her boldness in the words to say. Lord, by your spirit, will you convict these friends' hearts for their need of a Savior so that they may see that they are sinners in need of a Savior and that you, Jesus Christ, are him. Just like we see in Acts 4, the apostles pray, the church prays, that they may continue to be more bold. As they say, In Acts 4, the people who listened 
The people who couldn't stand up against the wisdom of Stephen couldn't stand up to it because it was the Holy Spirit who was empowering Stephen to do these things, to speak these things, to even do the signs and the wonders that we see. And let's be disciples who are learning Christ in repentance and faith, trusting the Holy Spirit in the proclamation of Jesus' message, understanding at the same time that there are only two reactions to the message of Jesus. There are only two. I've talked about this before. You can't sit on the fence with Jesus. A, sitting on the fence is just really uncomfortable. But you have to pick. You're either war. Either you reject or you accept. So these people reject God as Peter, uh, it's not Peter, as Stephen proclaims the good news of Jesus Christ to them. As you see in verses 11 to 15, the people reject God. Do you notice that no amount of argument or good argument can win the hearts of an individual unless the Spirit first convicts? You see that there? He gave a great argument. They couldn't withstand his arguments, and they still rejected him in the words that were said. John 16, 8 says, and when he comes, Jesus says, he will convict, when he comes, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. What is the reaction of the people who are listening? They couldn't withstand the wisdom of Stephen because it wasn't his, because God is God's wisdom. So they begin to scheme. They begin to gather some supports. They begin to send out some letters and make some phone calls. And they do it all in secret. It's interesting. I wonder sometimes as I was looking at this, what would happen if we took a look at our own words and actions and thoughts and motives and compared them to this group of people, those who are godly and those who are ungodly, and see what side of the fence we actually find ourselves in. So what do they resort to? Verse 11, it says, then it points out an important development in what's happening next. The people who couldn't win Stephen in their theological debate moved to a secret instigate, to secretly instigate. The word there is talking about putting words in someone's mouth. And you see that later in the text. Or making false suggestions. Hey, did you hear that? Did you know that? They were gossiping, essentially. And when he, men who said, they say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. So they gather false witnesses. They accuse him of blasphemy, which is to speak against Moses and the law and against God, against the temple, which, which was where God dwelt. And I say that in past tense because if you recall how Jesus died, the curtain was what? Torn in two, signifying what? And I'm reminded of Matthew 10, verses 22 to 24, which says, And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, Jesus says to his disciples. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in your own town, flee to the next for truly I say to you, you will, not have, sorry, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. 
I think of John 15, verse 20, 21. Remember the words that I say to you, a servant is no greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they, if they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. On a side note, these passages are completely against any sort of prosperity gospel. All the actions we will see that are happening to Stephen will look familiar because they happened to Jesus too. And just like he promised his disciples, it's happening to Stephen. So when Jesus said that a disciple is not above his teacher or they persecuted him, they would persecute his people, Stephen is walking through this. But remember the response of the apostles in Acts as they rejoiced because they were found worthy to be persecuted for the name of Christ. They cherished Jesus so much that the reward was so invested in who Jesus is that whatever could happen to them in the name of Jesus was just a reminder of the reward they had. So in verse 12, they were stirring everyone up. The men were stirring up everyone with these thoughts. And after all, how dare a man say such things against God and against his temple? But here's the funny thing. It's all a lie. Or half-truths, because half-truths are a lie, right? In Matthew 5 and in Mark 2, Jesus actually holds up the law, he says. In fact, he is the one who fulfills the law in Galatians 4. Jesus was addressing, however, the things that were added to the law that weren't part of the law. And what Stephen was doing, and he repeats later, is that when Jesus came, the temple order was done as the temple curtains were torn in two, as Jesus' death was making possible for all people of all nations to come to God through Jesus Christ. And Jesus said these things in John 2, verse 9, but he also explains them in John 2, verse 21, See, Jesus did say, tear down this temple and I will build it in three days. He did say that, but they missed the second part. This is why context is king, okay? Don't ever take a passage out of the Bible and say, that's my life verse, without first reading the context. Okay, John 2, 21 actually says, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. So Jesus was referring to how the authorities who Stephen are now standing before will kill Jesus and three days later will rise again. And that's exactly what he did. So this synagogue, these men of the synagogue have their scheme and it begins to work. The spirit, the people start gathering a bit of a crowd around them with the usual suspects and people who don't have a good track record like the crowds and the leaders and the scribes. And in verse 13, we see that they begin to get false witnesses, people who are willing to lie. And Stephen doesn't stop talking about how Jesus will make the temple void because he fulfills the requirements of the law. As Hebrews 10 says, all other sacrifices needed to go because they didn't fully pay the price for sin, but Jesus' death was perfect. We just, David just talked about this with our children. 
there was only one person who could fully pay the price for our sin, and his name was Jesus. And Stephen continues to proclaim that. Now they're upset in verse 14 about how they're going to start changing customs of Moses. And because Stephen would have proclaimed that salvation comes through faith in Christ rather than the works of the law, like Romans 3, 28, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. See, Stephen wasn't seized and brought towards the council because he was doing nice things. It wasn't because of the signs and the wonders that he was doing that he was dragged before this group of people. It was because he was speaking the gospel. The signs and the wonders were used to give opportunity to speak the message about Jesus. And the message about Jesus is always front and center. The message about Jesus is rejected not because of the nice things the Christians do in his name, but because of the message about Jesus says that we are all sinners and that we desperately need to be saved. That's why they're rejected. We live in this culture, it's so individualistic that we think we can do it all on our own. I saw a, a poster from 100 years ago. It was, a, it was an advertisement for children. It was a little creepy because, you know, it was 100 years ago. And there's this toy telling this child sitting on a stool saying, you are special. Our children are special, but at the same time, they need to know that they can't save themselves. Only Christ can. See, the message of Jesus is rejected not because of the nice things, because it's telling a bunch of people that they're wrong. I don't know about you, but I hate being told I'm wrong. Hate it. I'm learning to just shut up. But the gospel tells me I'm wrong. And that I'm a sinner. That I've sinned against the holy God and that my only do right thing that I can ever receive is hell itself. But Jesus Christ dies for my sin and he rose again. He enables me to believe and have faith in him so that I am rescued out of that, that I'm brought out of a kingdom of darkness and brought into a kingdom of light. Jesus is the only way to God. And what is Stephen's response to what is happening? He's been dragged before the council, remember this, right? So think about what your response would be. He's been lied about, just like Jesus had been lied about. You'd think that this would be a great spot to start freaking out. He doesn't. Verse 15, and gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. What does that look like? It's the complete opposite of freaking out. He was calm, unaggressive, just faithfully proclaiming what Jesus had already told him. Stephen was a man full of the spirits. Even his demeanor showed that. As he was being accused, he was still showing the fruits of the Spirit. He was facing false charges, and his face looked calm and collected. In the face of trials, the Holy Spirit gives Stephen the ability to trust God. 
that God has a situation in complete control and that God will use this for his own glory but also for Stephen's good. He wasn't afraid of his persecutors. He didn't shrink back from the fight. And a bit of a spoiler, he dies. And as he's being stoned, he still prays for the very people that are stoning him. Someone once said it this way, the character is what a man is in the dark. Psalm 27 verse 4 puts it so well. One thing have I asked of the Lord that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Stephen was so calm and collective because his eyes were fixed on Christ. There's a rapper, an artist named, don't, get, don't yell at me for this one later, uh, popular back in early 2000, 2001, named MIA. Uh, she was actually grew up as a Hindu. Uh, came up with a popular song that was all over the radio back before some of you may have even been born. I'm getting to the age where I can say that now. <laughs> Paper planes. Now, she had an interesting quote recently, and this isn't, this, uh, I need to be careful, this is not an endorsement of who she is or should you go listen to her music, because I was on there not too long ago, and I was like, yeah, I don't know. But she was raised as a Hindu, and last year, she claimed to be a born-again Christian. I don't know much about her outside of that, but she had this interesting quote. Basically, all of my fans might turn against me, she says, because they're all progressives who hate people that believe in Jesus Christ in this country. She's British. Even if it costs me my career, she says, I won't lie. I will tell the truth. I will tell you what's on my mind and my heart. If I'm coming back now saying Jesus is real, there's a point. So let me ask you these questions. Are you too concerned about your reputation when faced with opposition for the gospel? Do you shrink back from being confident in Jesus when asked to make a stand that we know will be unpopular? Stephen was fearless in his opposition to the kingdom of darkness. He was resolute in his determination to remain true to Jesus. He understood that God sovereignly uses the church as his means to accomplish the mission of Jesus, to spread the message about Jesus. He looked forward to his ultimate home in heaven, as he, gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. I think oftentimes people in this situation know what the end game is. Yet they continue to be calm. What we see here is an example for you and for I on how we need to be prepared to make a stand in defense of the gospel. It's not a yelling match. I don't try and out-argue someone. 
my Steph and I, my wife and I, uh, she, she often gets mad at me because I can outmaneuver her in my arguments, which you still lose. That's not what happens here. He, he, he's not outmaneuvering. He just seeks to be faithful to the witness. This might be in the classroom or at the water fountain or in the board meeting or at the park with your kids. Stephen just simply keeps pointing to Jesus. And when the moment comes to stand for the truth of the gospel, he keeps his eyes fixed on the hope he has in Christ. Stephen could stand, stand firm because his eyes were on the prize of Jesus Christ. So what, you may ask? Hopefully you kind of figured it out already. The Holy Spirit empowers his people to be faithful under trial, trusting him in the proclamation of Jesus' message. When it comes to faithfully talking about the message about Jesus, the first step to know is to be a person who wants to know God through his word and be in prayer. It's through that that the Holy Spirit empowers you and I in our weak and feeble state to go out and talk to the mom at the park or the dad at the park or the neighbor or the coworker or the friend in the school hallway. Knowing that we can't do it, but God can. How, do we stay, how, how can we be faithful under trial? Think about what Jesus has done for you. Just think about it. Because Jesus suffered God's wrath, we have a sure hope for an eternal future full of love, peace, and rest in the glorious presence of God. On the other hand, this same God will pour out his eternal wrath on all who reject his beloved son. And it's difficult to fear man when you put things in perspective. With our eyes fixed on Jesus, we will begin to see that all the other fears fade to the side. Our eyes are on Christ and his reward that he gives us are you willing to forsake him because you fear man? Do you consider your reward with Christ much greater than anything that could ever possibly happen to you on this planet? Are you willing to forsake all in this world to love and cherish Jesus, your Savior? There will be people who hate God and his gospel, but there is far greater reward in Christ, and we must work to have this perspective if we are going to be effective servants of the king. Stephen could be as calm as he was because his eyes were firmly fixed on Jesus, the author and the finisher of his faith. Stephen is a model for those of us who may find ourselves opposed or maybe even victimized. We need to go in with the understanding that the gospel may be hated, but because of the hope we have, because of the Holy Spirit, we can be faithful under trial. And Stephen was a man full of certain faith and was ready to head straight on whatever may come his way, knowing that God was in complete control. How can we be faithful under trial 
in the proclamation of Jesus' message by being people of the word and prayer who are relying upon the power of the Holy Spirit to give us the words that are needed and the ability to be strong and face these things and to persevere. One of the greatest songs I, I love, and we sang it last week, you know, He Will Hold Me Fast. The whole song is oozing with God's word. Who's the one that holds you fast? Not me. Not your wife, not your husband, not your children, not your grandma, whoever, not your pastor. Christ, the Holy Spirit, will hold you fast. We need to be reminded of these things as he perseveres us. This week, I pray that you would know more of the one your faith is in so that you can face whatever situation comes your way with certainty that God is in complete control, that we together would be faithful and effective in our witness. The Holy Spirit empowers his people to be faithful under trial, trusting him in the proclamation of Jesus' message. Let's pray.